Oh, I neglected oh, to mention uh, you'll hear me. You'll hear me do no. an intro to the show, yeah. and then we'll chat uninterrupted, and then I'll do the outro, and then I could say goodbye. Hello, and welcome to Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other ninety-five percent. I'm your aptly named host of your favorite hebdomadal podcast. Oh, I'm glad you're with me. I'd bear the pain of infraclusion if you made me chew on the idea that you missed this week's show. The Smart Nonprofit. That's Beth Cantor and Allison Fine's new book, revealing the potential of smart technology and artificial intelligence for your nonprofit and the entire sector. Beth and Allison are with us to share their thinking. On Tony's Take Two, debunk those top five myths of planned giving. We're sponsored by Turn Two Communications, PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits, tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D but they go one dimension deeper. What a pleasure to welcome back Beth Cantor and Allison Fine to the show. They've both been on multiple times. Although you uh, know them, uh, they, they, uh, they each deserve their own uh, special introduction. Beth Cantor is an internationally recognized thought leader and trainer in digital transformation and well-being in the nonprofit workplace. She was named one of the most influential women in technology by Fast Company and received the N10 Lifetime Achievement Award. She's at Beth Cantor and BethCantor.org. Allison Fine is among the nation's preeminent writers and strategists on the use of technology for social good. She's a member of the National Board of Women of Reform Judaism and was chair of the National Board of NARAL, Pro-Choice America Foundation, and a founding board member of Civic Hall. Allison is at AFine and AllisonFine.com. Beth and Allison, welcome back to Nonprofit Radio. Thank you for having us, Tony. Great Absolute to be here. Pleasure. Yes, congratulations on the book. It's very exciting. The response has been tremendous so far. Wonderful. Yeah, so both of our fourth book and second collaboration together. Second, yes, you co-authored uh, the network nonprofit, if I'm not mistaken. All right, and fourth book for both of you. Congratulations all around. Uh, I would actually like to start with the last sentence of the book. If every nonprofit in the sector can transform itself into a smart nonprofit, we can transform the world. End quote. Uh, do, does anybody want to claim authorship of that particular sentence? Is it possible for? co-authors to remember who wrote each each sentence throughout the book not possible uh, no not possible but okay. i'll just so then amen. uh all right allison <laughs> what what uh what does it take to uh become this uh ideal smart nonprofit? so a smart nonprofit, tony is an organization that understands deeply how to stay human-centered, and by that we mean putting people first internally and externally, uh, using the most advanced technology organizations have ever had at their disposal, this, this you know, um, family of technologies like AI, uh, machine learning, robots, and so on. And by doing that, Tony, we can stop the incredible hamster wheel of busyness, frantic busyness of organizations, just playing a daily game of whack-a-mole with email and telephone and, and ongoing meetings. All of that rote work can be done by the technology freeing up people to build relationships and tell stories and build communities and solve problems and do the deeply human work that most of us came to the sector to do in the first place. And you, you used the word busyness. Now, that was not business. That was busyness. Busyness with a Y in the middle. B-U-S-Y. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So there are many uh, 
considerations for uh, becoming a smart nonprofit and some uh, some uh, important roles of of leadership that uh, that come out in the book. Um, Beth, anything you would like to add to the to the intro to our our conversation? Um, sure. What, what Allison laid out so beautifully is the key benefit uh, that nonprofits get from embracing this technology, and that is the dividend of time. And that time can be reinvested either in building better relationships with donors or, or clients or stakeholders, or else it could be reinvested in the staff um, to free up time so we're not so... As you said, the busy work takes up a lot of time, but it also takes up a lot of cognitive overload. And maybe if we had more spaciousness, <laughs> we would be less exhausted um, and and more inspired and less burnout. Yeah, the uh, that that dividend of time is uh, throughout the book, and uh, we'll we'll accept that hypothesis for now. I have I have uh, I have some questions about that, some little skepticism about that, but for now, we'll accept that the, the dividend of time. Will indeed accrue to uh, people who work in, uh, in in smart nonprofits and to to the to the organization generally. Um, are, are you skeptical that it can be created, or are you skeptical that people will know what to do with it once they create it? No. Well, I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to challenge right off the bat. But skepticism that that it that it can be realized. Not, not okay. that people will know what to do if it does get realized, but um, yeah, well, well, let's come back to it. Let, let, let's leave the hypothesis uh, as, as, as perfectly fair and, and uh, uh, something to truly aspire to because there are, as you say, and as you lay out mostly in the last chapter, um, there are great places that the, the, the sector can go when we realize this, uh, this, the dividend of time. Um, let's talk a little about, you know, so like some of these elements of being a smart nonprofit. Um, Beth, let's stay with you for, you know, human centered. What, what do you, what do you all mean by, by that? Uh, well, I guess uh, we use another term in the book um, called co-botting. And really with that, I, we, I like that because it's like figuring out what the machines can do best, right? The, the automation technology, there's certain tasks that um, the technology is really good at doing. And those are things like analyzing large amounts of data and automating kind of rote tasks. But there are there's stuff in our jobs <laughs> that humans should do and always do. And that is the relationship building, taking the donors out to lunch. Like you, you were telling us you took um, a donor out to a nice restaurant <laughs> recently, you know, that's not something uh, automation is going to do for you. Um, and being creative, um, having empathy, uh, making intuitive decisions. And so when we use this technology, leaders really need to understand like what is the right workflow and always keep humans in charge. What's the, what's the, uh, how can we, how can we, make sure that we we center humans mm. in in uh, adopting this this smart technology well i think the first step is to ask to talk to them <laughs> and get their feedback and their input in um before you even like grab the software off the shelf it's not about that at all um you really have to start with um you know what are the points of pain what are the exclusive pain points that we want to address by adopting this technology and getting feedback from the end users whether that's staff uh clients uh donors and then um setting up a um you know, a, an understanding of what the journey is, what the workflow is, and where you divide things. And then you begin to go look at software tools and uh, and, and find vendors that are aligned with your val values. And once you've, or, or technologists that are aligned with your values. And then once you've done that, you can begin to start with um, pilots and, uh, uh, and iteration on it before you get to scale. This is so different, Tony, than um, social media, which both Allison and I have talked to you about, where we're encouraging people to just jump in, experiment, fail fast. What we're saying with this technology is that it's really important to um, to go slowly and to be knowledgeable and reflective about it. And um, reflective, yes, reflective is uh, something else I wanted to ask about. So, what a you read my mind, fantastic. Um, being reflective, Allison. What what yeah. is 
Why, what, what's that attribute about for the, for the smart nonprofit? So this is um, something I'm deeply passionate about, Tony. Um, I don't know if you know, I had a first career as a program evaluator. And uh, it's very, very difficult to get particularly smaller nonprofits who are so busy and so under-resourced to take a step back and not only think about how is what they're doing getting them closer to the results that they want to do, but uh, how can they improve um, over time? And we need them to understand not only the human-centeredness that Beth just spot on, you know, outlined, but in particular, Tony, how are we making people feel internally and externally about our efforts? Are we making people feel seen and known and heard? Or, and this is particularly important when we talk about smart tech, do you feel like a data point, just you know, a cog in, a, in large machinery um, that's just getting lost? Um, and uh, we know that feels terrible. Everybody has experiences of feeling, being made to feel small by organizations. Uh, and nothing is more important in our work, particularly in the social service and human service areas of making people feel known and heard. And yet it is just the sticking point for the sector that it is the thing that gets left off. And again, we're back to the busyness of work. So we want people to be reflective of uh, is this the right technology? Are you um, solving that exquisite pain point that you had? How are you making people feel when machines are now doing what only people could do until just a few years ago, you know, through smart tech? Uh, and is it solving the problems that you set out to solve? I, I, yeah, I, I admired that idea of, of reflective because, you know, it's, it, it's closely related, as you said, to being human centered. Uh, you know, thoughtfulness, um, and it, it, it goes to like preparation too. Um, it also goes to leadership, right? You have to have a leadership within an organization that isn't so brittle, that they are open to learning about how to improve. And there are too many organizations that are so fearful of being seen as not doing something well, that they won't openly and wholeheartedly um, be reflective about their activities. And, and it's mm. also about the culture too. And you know, we've used this word a lot, busyness. And when we have a culture of busyness and people are multitasking and there's back-to-back -back meetings, they don't have that space to be reflective. So, yeah. um, and, and, and that's so required to, um, to make the changes that um, you just read about <laughs> the last line of our book, you know, to get to that place. Uh, and we're gonna talk some about the leadership uh, you talk about being trustworthy and empathetic. We'll 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 get there. Um, another another attribute you uh, you mentioned, um, Beth, is is being knowledgeable. Knowledgeable about the the tech, and I I think it's limits too. But what will you 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 say it? You'll say it more eloquently than I will. I think we'll, uh, we can both say this, both Alice and I can say it both eloquently, but I'll kick off with um, when we say knowledgeable and we're, and we're saying this to leaders, we're not saying that you need to know how to code, um, you know, roll up your sleeves and write uh, the code, but you need to understand um, what goes into the code and whether it's biased, um, the data sets it's been trained on. And you need, most of the time, um, a lot of leaders in the nonprofit sector, when it comes to technology, it's kind of pushback, you know, oh, send it down the hall to the IT department. And we're really asking leaders um, to lead in uh, because there's, you know, potential challenges, which Allison is really great at explaining. <laughs> All right, well, Allison, explain those, but then maybe you can tell us a story too about uh, yeah, about uh, like the degree to which a leader needs to be knowledgeable. Uh, so we're talking about um, this family of technologies, Tony, that is very quickly becoming embedded in every single part of organizational life, right? This is not a, uh, you know, fundraising software. Uh, smart tech is going to be embedded in uh, the finances and the back office and the comms and development and, and in everything. And 
the idea of having machines automatically pay for things or screen resumes or screen people for services is a fundamental shift in who is doing work and how it's being done, right? So when you understand that premise, you have to have the C-suite leaning in to this to understand what it means when your staff is doing different things than they used to do and when people on the outside are engaging with machines instead of people, right? These are fundamental shifts. So one area, um, well, two, I just mentioned that are so important is if you are automating the screening of resumes, then the assumptions that some programmer put into that system and the resumes that were used to test it for looking for certain kinds of employees with certain kinds of skills are going to be biased. I can tell you that right now, right? They are going to have a bias and largely that bias is going to be against, you know, people who are black and brown or, or women. Yeah. It's going to be in favor of white men. Exactly. Because that is what employment looks like. Those are the questions we use. Those are the expectations that we have. And the programming was done most likely by a white man. Um, so if you don't know what to ask the creator of that software that you've just bought, that is going to quote, save you a ton of time looking at resumes, um, but also screen out um, people of color and women, then you've just done an incredible disservice to your organization. And the same if you are providing uh, housing services or food services um, to people in need, the same kinds of biases are going to be found in these systems, right? This is a systems problem. And that's why, as Beth was saying, this is not a technical problem. This is not something where you say, go IT guys, go find us a good product. You know, they're not looking out for your organization's interests in equity. That's what leadership is for, right? Setting those moral standards, setting that compass and making sure that your values are aligned in everything you do and how you do it as an organization. Yeah, you you, you both are very clear in the book that this is a leadership issue, not a technology issue. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's right. It's time for a break. Turn to communications. They have another interesting newsletter this week advocating for the use of cliches. Their argument is that cliches shouldn't be ruled out entirely, but used judiciously. Like, not, don't go overboard either. Whatever you think about cliches, my point is they're thinking about them. They're thinking about how best to communicate your story because your story is their mission. Turn-2.co. Now back to the smart nonprofit. Any any stories? Can we uh, can we tell a story at this point, uh, Allison? Sure. Uh, uh, there are there are um, social service agencies around the country um that we're using smart tech systems to provide um uh food uh assistance and only after the system had been in place for several years tony did they find out that it was literally leaving out um, black people from the system in the opening chapter of our book we talk about a screening tool called vi spadat uh, Say that three times. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I just kept saying it. V I S P D T. Uh, yeah, yeah. The I spadat that um, was programmed by um, a white man with very good intentions that unintentionally was leaving black people out of getting um, priority housing uh, in hundreds of communities around the world for years before the social workers finally got heard saying, "We know this tool doesn't work. We're on the ground. We're using it." It is not screening people correctly because the questions were biased against people of color who have so much trouble getting into public systems. You uh, you have three caveats sort of to, that uh, that you, uh, you you make very clear, and bias is one of them. So we've just we've talked about that. Um, responsible use is another another of the three. Uh, Beth, can you can you talk to? Uh, what you're thinking about responsible use and you know, sort of thinking through problems? Um, sure. Um, uh, it's kind of like taking a Hippocratic oath <laughs> that you will do no oh. harm, right? So the example that um, Allison just laid out, 
obviously there was harm done by keeping people, screening people out for important services. Um, so, so it, it behooves um, nonprofits to do uh, something that we call threat modeling. I know it's a big, scary term and word, and it comes from oh, internet okay. cybersecurity, but it's that's, actually- didn't, didn't frighten me, threat modeling. Okay, well, it might, okay. it might frighten some people. We, we've had that reaction. Um, yeah. But it's just basically yeah, very, nonprofit radio is very savvy listeners here. This is <laughs> Absolutely. A, this, is a, this is a higher echelon audience than your customers. Right. Of course, your other, other podcasts. So please. Yes. Please. Threat <laughs> but, modeling is not intimidating to us. Okay. So threat modeling is actually having a brainstorm of all the possible things that could go wrong um, if you uh, implement uh, this uh, technology. Um, what, what harms could be done to the end user um, if, they were, if they were given, um, let's say you have a bot, right? And, and in fact, uh, the Trevor Project is an example of an organization that did this threat modeling. Uh, they wanted to, uh, they had a problem. Um, they had, are, you, are you familiar with the uh, Trevor Project, right? Explain, explain what, what the- Okay, so what, they provide the, uh, LGBT uh, counseling mission. to, yes, to LGBTQ youth, uh, you know, through text um, and, and online. Uh, phone, if you will. And so they're dealing with uh, kids who are in crisis and a whole, you know, um, continuum of, of issues. And they uh, have um, counselors that they're, who are volunteers, but they're trained in this very specific, very sensitive type of counseling, especially when um, young people are coming to them in, in crisis. And so, um, so the problem was, you know, they needed to scale um, and get more counselors in there so they could help more clients. And so they decided that they wanted to use a bot which is, uh, you know, automated response. We're all familiar with bots, you know, buy a pair of sneakers <laughs> online or trying to make a doctor's appointment and you, you encounter a bot. And so rather than replace the counselors on the front line with this technology, that wouldn't be human center. It could be potentially dangerous, um, especially with a sophisticated uh, self-learning bot, which could learn through, you know, and learn through interactions and say the wrong things. And that could be devastating to an end user who's in crisis. But what they decided to do was to use the bot for training simulations. So they, they, they took data from real conversations, stripping all privacy information, and they used this to train their bot, which was a highly sophisticated software that was self-learning. But they said that this bot will not be on the front lines with anybody. It will only interact with um, for training simulations. So what this did was free up a lot of time from the staff in terms of delivering trainings to, to more quality control. So they were able to get more counselors on the front line. So it's an example of being human-centered, but it's also an example of that dividend of time <laughs> and, and repurposing it. Um, and also uh, making sure, you know, so it's doing no harm. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that responsible use. Okay, okay. Um, the, other, the other caveat you have, so you have, you have three caveats, bias, responsible use, and privacy. Talking mm -hmm. about ethical standards. Who's, uh, who's, who's most interested in talking about privacy? Allison Fine raised her hand first. Yes, okay. I did. Um, so this is not a new issue, right? We've been dealing with uh, digital privacy um, for a long time, but as a sector, uh, haven't really ever gotten our arms around it, Tony, right? In that we as a sector have just subscribed to, I think, we think the lowest uh, expectations from the commercial side, which is you try to get as much personal data as you can, right? You ask for those emails and you leave, you might let somebody unsubscribe from a newsletter, but you don't delete their emails, right? And a much, much more ethical model we feel is uh, in the European Union, the, the GDPR, can't remember what that stands for, but the idea is that, um, the people, the consumers, constituents, donors, volunteers are in charge of their data and they get to tell us how they want to be engaged with us, right? They get to tell us that they want to be forgotten entirely from our systems. Uh, they don't want to be on any of our lists. They don't want to be in our systems. And that flipping over of the model, we think is very in keeping with being human-centered, right? It, it's very in keeping with the values that we're trying to uh, imbue in this whole concept of smart nonprofits, right? That we shouldn't fear um, 
asking people what the value we provide to them is, right? Do we provide enough value in having their email for them to want to stay with us? Or are we just churning through, again, as we said in the beginning, churning them through uh, systems like their cogs in a, a great big machinery? So we think smart tech is going to generate even more data than the last 10 years of digital tech, which is astonishing to think about, kind of mind-blowing to think about. Yeah, and because I think, didn't you cite 90% 90, 90 of the data that we have is been collected in the past two years? Yeah, yeah. It is That's going remarkable. to, to so. explode. And so we need to be we need to raise the bar on our ethical considerations on the use of the data and the uh, relationship that we have with our constituents. They need to trust us more. The fact that the nonprofit sector, along with other sectors, the degree of trust is going down, Tony, is, is not good. And we ought to hold ourselves to higher standards of privacy and data protection. Two weeks ago, Gene Takagi and I talked about that exact subject in a show that I called uh, in nonprofits do we trust it was just it was just two weeks ago it's time for a break fourth dimension technologies your tech is an investment invest wisely what's the state of your office infrastructure should you give remote or hybrid employees tech allowances or just give them the equipment outright or both or neither How's your disaster recovery plan? How's your backup working? 4D can help you with all these investment decisions. Check the listener landing page, tony.ma slash 4D. Just like 3D, but you know, they go one dimension deeper. Let's return to the smart nonprofit. Do we know what the impact has been on, on business uh, uh, coming out of the the GDPR has it has it had the devastating effect on business that the business community in Europe was was claiming when they were uh, uh, lobbying against it or trying to you know trying to weaken it do we do we know I'm, I'm putting you on the spot do, do, yeah. do, do either of you know whether that's had such a devastating impact on on no. European business no, it's been fine and and look companies yeah. commercial companies here have had to put uh more effort into privacy issues when they do work uh, in the European Union. Yeah. Okay. And in California. <laughs> you know, and California, and Beth? California yeah. are holding people to the same standards uh, okay. now, um, but it hasn't had a huge negative impact on business. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's right. fine. Okay. Right. Okay. Now, this, uh, this smart tech, uh, artificial intelligence we're talking about, this is widely used commercially. Right. I mean, isn't this, uh, 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 I don't know, fundamental to Amazon, Google, uh, the 24 the hour chat bot that Beth mentioned, you know, you see a little bot 24 seven, the likelihood of that being a live person at four in the morning is very, very small. This, this is, this is ubiquitous in, in the commercial sector, isn't it? Yes, it is. But I think we're at this point, um, uh, Allison likes to call it the heel of the hockey stick, <laughs> where it's going to, uh, the, the cost of this technology has come down, it's becoming democratized, and it's becoming more accessible to nonprofits of all sizes. Um, all right. you, so you, better... it you don't have to be NASA to use this. <laughs> all right, now to keep yourself out of jargon jail, uh, you're going to have to explain the, uh, the hockey stick on a graph uh, metaphor. So go ahead, tell us what X and Y are and why it looks like a hockey stick. Okay, it, it, it's uh, okay. So imagine a hockey stick, right? <laughs> or I should do it this way. I'm I'm looking at my Zoom. Well, nobody can mirror. nobody can see your hands. Nobody but we can all know see what that. But we, but we all it are shows, sophisticated um, enough to know what hockey sticks look like. It, it basically shows, and this happens with technology, um, is that you know, early adopters use it because it's very expensive, experimental, it's unproven. And as it, uh, the technology improves and the cost comes down and it becomes more accessible to consumers and to small businesses and to organizations, the adoption rate starts to skyrocket. So it goes up. So you see sort of a flat line and then a, a steep hill or steep right. mountain increase in adoption. So X, X is time and Y is uh, technology adoption. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you're better at charts than I am. 
Okay. Well, you 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 invoked the metaphor of the hockey stick. You got to you got to be able to stand behind it now. Oh, I All guess right. I guess I should. All right. All right. It, it's it, not it, just nonprofits adopting this now, Tony. I would say that it's all medium and small size organizations in every sector that now has available to them technology that they couldn't afford just a few years ago. And that's that's what the difference is. The technology isn't brand new. It's just become very affordable for smaller organizations. However, as I mentioned before, just because it's available and just because it's affordable doesn't necessarily mean it's the right stuff to grab off the shelf. And that's the part, that's that's the impetus for us to write this book. You need to know what you're grabbing and using. Yeah, the availability to small and mid-sized shops, I think, is through is throughout your book. Um, you, you, let's tell another good story. The, the one with the... Uh, uh, the repurposing of the school bus routes to deliver food instead of drop off children during the pandemic because children were no longer going to school. So they repurposed school buses to drop off meals. Who, who, yes. who knows that story best? Yeah, so you're, you're talking about uh, researchers at uh, Carnegie Mellon University and you're talking about the uh, Pittsburgh um, sc school system. And it's Pittsburgh and, school system, okay. Yeah, you, yeah. You, United Pittsburgh School District or whatever it's called. Um, so this was at the very beginning of the uh, pandemic when we were in the shutdown and, uh, um, and kids that are in schools that are in poor areas relied on the school lunch program to to get their meals, right? And so if schools were shut down and, uh, and students were telecommuting, they had no way to get this food. So they used a machine learning algorithm to re-engineer the bus routes to take the food to the kids um, in the most efficient way. It's really interesting how during the pandemic, it, you know, there was a little bit of a silver lining. I know it's awful, <laughs> but there was this silver lining for some nonprofits to really push and to innovate. And I think food banks in a way were forced to do this. Um, and there's another example uh, in, in Boston of uh, the Boston Food Bank completely automating its inventory and its stocking um, to become a, a lot more efficient. And at one point, um, they even were experimenting with having robots come in and stock the shelves because most of um, food banks volunteers are older and they were told not, you know, during the very early part of the pandemic not to you know, come in because it, it could be dangerous to their health. Um, and that's also a great kind of um, idea, uh, story, use scenario to think about to do the threat modeling that we were talking about earlier. So let's just say, for example, food banks, say, oh, let's, let's bring in the robots <laughs> and have them stock the shelves, you know? So, so, but you also have to think about that volunteers who are coming in um, uh, to do this type of work, those were their lifeline in terms how of- How are they going to feel, right. Yeah, right. how are they going to feel? And how are we going to redesign the volunteer job? And how are you going to mm -hmm. encourage them to come back in and make them feel safe and welcome into the food bank? And that's right. the Unless feeling less, less they feel useless and right. re replaced right. by machinery. And this is all the organization thought of us. And now they now it's just a bunch of metal replacing us, metal and plastic parts. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Also being human centered, reflective. But that, that's, also, that's the dividend of time, Tony. If you can say, all right, we used to have these, uh, you know, two dozen volunteers who came in and were stocking shelves all the time. And now we've automated that task. What is it that these, you know, lovely people who want to help could do that would be so, you know, deeply human-centered, as you say, and, uh, ex you know, in, in, improve our relationship with our clients? Maybe they could be calling clients. So what else do you need? You know, what else is happening for you? Or just saying hello to somebody, right? I mean, there are all sorts of wonderful human things that those people could now do if they want to. Um, that they never had the time to do before. That's right. the that's where this is again a leadership issue of really thinking about how do we want to use our human capital in the next chapter of organizational development. Okay, thank. That's an excellent example of the dividend of time. We're uh, we're about a half an hour in or so. So let me uh, let me try my my uh, skepticism out on you. That <laughs> we uh, I've heard this before. That that. Um, there was going to be there were promises of increased productivity and increased time. Uh, I'm thinking of smartphones. We're yeah. going to give us more time, and they certainly made us yeah. more productive. But I don't, I don't, I don't see studies saying that we we have 
so much more time. I see that time being absorbed. Now you might say, well, maybe I'm making your case for you. That time being reallocated unthoughtfully, unwisely. But I don't, I don't see people walking around feeling that they've got so much more free time since the widespread adoption of smartphones what, yeah. 10 I years think. ago or so. Um, yeah. Another yeah. video conferencing, you know, whatever, Teams, uh, Zoom. I, I hear more about Zoom burnout than I yeah. do about feeling that I've got so much more time available because I don't have to go to meetings. I don't have to go to the office, um, you know. So those are a couple of the paperless office. That was another right. the, paper, the promise of the paperless office was going to be so much, so much more efficient for us. And uh, I think that was going to save us time because we wouldn't have to file papers and it was going to save office space because we wouldn't need storage. Right. And uh, these Let's promises, um, yeah. I'm, I hate to sound to like a, 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 a whining 60 year old, but these promises have not come to fruition, <laughs> not come to fruition in the past. So, I'll, I'll take what I'll tackle the zoom fatigue thing and and then Allison can kind of relate it to smart tech so okay. curmudgeonly I, I, I guess I should say uh, I, I, I'm not whining I don't want to sound like a curmudgeonly 60 year old oh well you're not a curmudgeon and you never whine <laughs> oh well, thank you so so if you take um zoom fatigue right um and that came from Stanford University and basically what uh is causing it is the flight or fight response that it's going on in our bodies when we see the grid I mean there's some ways to mitigate it but what happened is is that nonprofits like many businesses all of a sudden we we're forced to pivot to becoming remote distributed teams we'd never really work like that so the idea was oh let's just all make it a zoom meeting let's just take everything we did in person and just plop it online and what happened because everybody was doing this there was we didn't really evaluate how do we collaborate effectively what do we need what can we do like asynchronously so we can uh, make use of our synchronous or real-time uh experience so we can make meetings shorter uh, there's research from microsoft that shows that if you have stacked back-to-back -back meetings without taking a break your level of stress just stays the same throughout the day. And so if organizations were reflective, knowledgeable, and right, kind of prepared, they would have looked at and said, okay, so let's look at how we can, you know, stick to a culture of maybe um, a 20-minute meeting with a 10-minute break in between, or have a Zoom number per day that we know that we're not going to schedule more than X number of meetings, which would then think to how do we rethink our work? Um, so it's not just the technology. That's true. The technology doesn't create the dividend of time. It's a combination of the technology with good, thoughtful leadership, reflective leadership, as we've been saying, that can then change the culture. All right. Yeah. yeah. And let me let me let me build on that, Tony. So we have an entire generation of digital technology that was intended to make us go faster. Right. That was that's what it has done. We are at a point now we're checking your email on average 74 times a day is, quote, normal. Right. We've gone it's, from, uh, I don't know, let, let's see, uh, fax to yeah. email to texting yeah. to yeah. to to um, um, Slack. We 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 get that this technology, smart tech. Uh, AI automation is not that technology. It is a fundamentally different kind of technology that's intended to do things instead of people, not to have us do more. But as Beth just said, it's only going to do that if we implement it thoughtfully, right? If we end up in the same place where we are checking on the bots 74 times a day, shame on us, the stuff has the potential to relieve us of so much administrative rote work that just eats up everybody's day. And if we can cobot well and have the bots do what they're supposed to do and the people do what they, they're supposed to do, we can actually rehumanize work. But uh, as you know, we're just at the beginning of this process. A lot of this is theoretical. And that's, again, is why we wrote this book. Instead of jumping in and grabbing the stuff and adding it onto your existing busyness, franticness culture, we need you to stop and think and figure out how to do this well.
You know, there's some um, research that's uh, from MIT Sloan School that looked at the effectiveness of this technology and um, and where it is effective is if people don't just focus on the efficiency of it, that is uh, to, okay, wow, we can get all of these tasks done way more efficiently because people aren't cutting and pasting from different spreadsheets, um, but we're not gonna fill up <laughs> uh, people's uh, uh, with more work to do. So it's not to go faster, it's really to be more effective. And um, so if this technology can be um, implemented and it can kind of relieve some of that stress and pain of overload, then that has an impact on uh, morale <laughs> and people feeling good about where they work. And there is a synergistic impact that um, the study found that where efficiency and kind of effectiveness work together. So there's, so, that can have more, you know, people feel better about their work. Uh, they do better, they get better results. They're less likely to quit. Um, there's less likely to be turnover and uh, the organization moves forward in a, in a better way with better outcomes. Right, okay. All right, and that's that's if, if it's adopted with leaders consciously being uh, human-centered, knowledgeable, reflective, prepared, yeah. Uh, and we're going to get to trust and empathy. Um, all right. Well, yeah, it's, you may have moved me from skeptic to uh, cautious optimist. Okay. We'll take it. Still, right. We'll take uh, it. I was going to say, what are you still, what are you still a little uh, skeptical? No, it's just, it, the, now, the, just, you know, the history, the history yeah. has not, has not borne out that leaders have adopted the new technology uh, re reflectively, thoughtfully, and preparedly. Um, yeah. It's just, so I'm just basically. They need to read our book. <laughs> Pardon me. They need to read our book. Well, they never exactly had the book. Well, now, it. <laughs> now it's 2022. Now they have the book. They didn't have it when we went from fax to email or email to right. Slack or email to text and text. Slack. All right. All right. No, no. It's okay. Um, so leaders, please uh, keep listening. It's time for Tony's take two. Debunk the top five myths of planned giving. That's my free webinar coming up. It's Tuesday, October 18th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 o'clock Eastern. I say free webinar, but it's not free for everyone. It's free for you because you're going to use checkout code TONY, T-O-N-Y. Couldn't be simpler. I think you have to put it all in caps too. I'm not sure about that part, but do it all in caps to be safe. So I'm going to be talking about debunking these, these insidious, pernicious top five myths of planned giving. I hate them. Uh, I loathe them. They are loathsome. That's why I loathe them. Uh, because they keep people away from planned giving. Like the one that says planned giving is going to ruin all your other fundraising. It's going to take away from your annual gift and your major annual giving and major giving debunk. We're going to debunk that and four others as well. So join me. Uh, very simple to sign up, of course. You go to uh, our gracious host site. We are thoughtfully hosted by NP Solutions. So you go to npsolutions.org. You click workshops. You'll find me in the list. And then when you're checking out, use that code, TONY, do it in all caps, and it'll be free for you. Not for everybody, but for you. I hope you'll be with me. Let's debunk these hateful top five myths. That is Tony's take two. We've got Buku, but loads more time for the smart nonprofit with Beth Cantor and Allison Fine. Let's, let's talk some about the leadership. It's perfect. So you mentioned the three things I really want to talk about. Uh, trustworthy empathy uh, uh, and uh, curiosity. And I, I have to get this in. If you had an H, then you could have spelled out tech. Trustworthy, empathy, curious, high-minded. Human, human-centered. <laughs> human-centered. You need tech. You, get, you got the TEC in the book. I was looking, where's the H? All right. Uh, what does it look like for leaders to be, to be trustworthy? To adopt trust, who who who's the best? Who's the most trustworthy uh, 
uh, <laughs> explainer of, of trust. I don't care. It could be either I'll one. I'll take of empathy. Allison okay. trust. All right, Allison, trust is yours. We got to go in order. And then if we can come yeah. up with an H, uh, human yeah. centered, but that you already have that in the, in becoming a smart nonprofit. That's that you already covered that one. So yeah. you can come up with another one. Um, so, Herculean, yeah. heroic, heroic or, or Herculean. <laughs> All right. Trust, Allison. Why, why is this trust important? So uh, organizations are making a bond with people in their communities, right? We are, we are asking them to come along on a journey with us uh, to be clients, to be donors, to be volunteers, to engage with us in some way. And trust is the stuff that's sticking us together, right? It is social capital. It is thinking that an organization has your best interests at heart, not just their best interests at heart. And um, I feel like for 20 years, so many organizations have been going, moving so quickly on this hamster wheel, uh, advised by people who make a lot of money off of transactional fundraising and transactional engagement uh, online and have lost sight of the fact that unless and until people out there trust that you are doing the right stuff in the right way, nothing else matters. And we're all trying to scale way too quickly, Tony, without really understanding the fundamental DNA of uh, making sure that we are entirely values aligned from what we wanna do to what we're actually doing to the outcomes. And again, you know, Beth and I feel so strongly that the nonprofit sector is such an incredibly special place. Right, we are the the epicenter of the world for you know providing human services and doing advocacy work, and it is such incredibly brave, difficult work, and yet we still have a ways to go in asking our the leadership of organizations, both C suite and the boards, to raise the bar, to be more transparent. Uh, to to ask more questions about how they're doing, to measure their outcomes, to uh, take care of their people internally and externally better. And so that's why we put trust so high up on the scale of what we want organizations to be focused on. I think leaders feel when they're they're falling short uh, in 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 the aspirations that you just described. I think I think folks feel it. It's just, but they're on that hamster wheel, and it's it's hard you know to take happens? it's hard to take that step back and and acknowledge what you're feeling and be introspective yeah. as an organization. Uh, let me let me let me describe something though that's really important, Tony. That we as a sector don't talk nearly enough about, and that's what Beth and I call the leaky bucket in fundraising. Right. So year one, you get a hundred donors. By year two, you're down to twenty five of those. You've lost 75% of those donors because you're so busy filling up the bucket again <laughs> because you lost 75% the year before. And all you're doing is this transactional fundraising, the email, the direct mail to fill up the bucket again. All of the measures of fundraising success are front loaded, right? Of did we hit those you know, revenue targets for this year? very few organizations are really focused on donor retention and how to increase it. It's never been at a board table for discussion that I've been at in many, many years, many, many organizations of being on the board. And that is where the panic comes in and it feels terrible to staff. And, you know, I, my heart just goes out to all of those people who are in a panic about hitting those revenue numbers, knowing that what they're working with is hemorrhaging donors every single day. <laughs> and that's where, you know, just in my heart of hearts, Tony, I just want everybody to stop. Just stop and take a step back and figure out how to improve your relationship with donors more so they stay longer with you and you're not in this panic every day. Allison, we're gonna come back to you for, uh, for curiosity. Uh, Beth, let's talk about empathy. Um, sure, and I, I, 
and I think the empathy is needs to be turned within first before it gets uh, turned outside uh, to the donors to solve um, what, what Allison was just talking about. But so empathetic leadership uh, means the ability to understand the needs of others and being aware of their feelings and thoughts. And unfortunately, it's viewed as kind of like a soft skill. Um, and it's not always linked to performance um, indicators, right? And so I think it's really important, especially with what we've been through in the pandemic, um, that organizations really need to have clear expectations with their managers to lead in a way that is supportive of, of employees and that supports and contributes to their overall well-being. And they can do that and still get work done. Um, and I think that like, don't get me started on well-being, but um, well-being has to be put center and it has to be raised up and given as much importance as fundraising metrics or, or other financial metrics, um, especially given what we've been through. And so this includes checking in, um, training people to like actually observe on their staff and uh, making sure that they're, um, you know, caretakers for each other's uh, well-being. And it's, you know, like a one-on-one -on -one check in isn't just about, hey, where's that report? Where's that proposal? But it's also how people are feeling, what their energy um, is like, what their job experience is like, what could be improved, which gets us closer to that conversation of, around uh, technology. So um, the types of skills um, and competencies that uh, make for a culture of care and empathy or you know, self-awareness and self-regulation, uh, adaptive skills, active listening, coaching with powerful questions, observing for signs of burnout, being able to give and receive feedback that in a way that doesn't cause stress, disrupting um, microaggressions, um, inclusive facilitation, having those di difficult conversations, you know, sometimes we're just too nice, um, uh, but there's ways to have those conversations that aren't uh, devastating and genuine perspective taking, being able to see it from other people's points of view. And it doesn't, I don't think that makes us weaker. I really think it makes us stronger. No, absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not a bunch of one, uh, you know, reaction when I wrote the, um, you know, the happy, healthy, happy, healthy with Eliza Sherman. Yeah, yeah. Right. We get the, you know, that's a bunch of hippie crap. It's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I didn't say that when I talked to you. No, Eliza, you didn't, didn't say, say that. that. No, of yeah. course you wouldn't say that you're too smart. Oh, thank you. Well, you hardly know me, but thank you. I'll take it anyway. Um, no, a lot of what you're describing too is vulnerability. And I think vulnerability is a sign of, uh, is evidence of confidence that you're, yeah. that you're strong enough to be vulnerable, where lots of people think it's a sign of weakness, that you're showing, you know, you're, you're showing your human side. And, you know, that I think that's terribly misguided. Um, all right. If we're going to, if we're going to, if I'm going to keep you uh, not beyond uh, our allocated time, let's go to Allison for, uh, for curiosity. Why is it important? Is yes. That why is why is curiosity a, a valued trait for uh, leaders? Uh, you know, the world is moving really fast, Tony, and we have um, a lot of organizational leaders uh, who think tech is not their thing. Right? Tech is for somebody else, and uh, it can't not be your thing if you're running an organization right now. It's too important. It's an threaded throughout everything that your organization is doing. And it, you can't just lean back, you need to lean into it. And to do that, you need to be genuinely curious about, in our case, for smart tech, what is this stuff? And why is it important? And how is it different from the last generation of technology? And what could we actually accomplish if we didn't spend three quarters of our day responding to emails? <laughs> what is possible out there in the world? And, you know, my heart breaks for so many of the nonprofit folks that Beth and I talk to who have such good intentions and are so deeply unhappy with how stressful their jobs are or how unrecognized they are by the C-suite um, or how um, uh, pressurized uh, they feel. So it is just uh, innately important for organizational leaders to be genuinely curious about where do we go from here, right? The world broke two years ago in so many fundamental ways. The, the political economic stress of this moment is wearing people down. 
but we can't stay here, Tony. We need to go somewhere. And we genuinely believe that the family of technologies we call smart tech creates an opportunity to be different in the future, to make work joyful and much more meaningful and rewarding. And you can only get there if you're genuinely curious and engaged uh, in understanding the technology. And I think curiosity and empathy are, are interrelated too. That's right. Curiosity about your people as Beth was for all the, in all the ways Beth was describing. Um, That's exactly right. All right. Um, I don't suppose the Beth, I don't suppose you uh, on the fly came up with an H for, to spell out tech uh, for us. Did you? <laughs> well, putting... well, it, well, human centered, but we are. Yeah, but we, about yeah, but, centered. yeah, you have that one already. Humility, that... maybe humility. <laughs> humility. Humility is a good one. There you go. Okay. So All let's right. riff on that humility. <laughs> In the second edition, you can add, uh, you can add humility and spell out tech. Right. And then we'll yeah. footnote it and say suggested by Tony. Uh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Humility. Right. Isn't that simple? Uh, yeah. Related to being empathetic. Yeah. yeah. Don't, it, leaders it don't know, need to know everything, do they? Oh, gosh, no. No. <laughs> Listen, we've, you know, the reason why we wrote the network nonprofit, Tony, was to take that idea of the hierarchical um, model of leadership and organizations out of the equation and say, the point is somebody else in your network has the answer. You don't have to have the answer yourself. You just have to know how to go about getting it, right? And and that of of flattening your organization and your worldview is so important to being able to uh, survive all the uncertainties of what's happening right now. Since we started with uh, Alice and Beth, I'm gonna let you uh, wrap us up, please. There's so much more in the book. There are use cases, you know, we didn't, the book, we can only scratch the surface here. You got to get the book. That's the point. You get, they talk about uh, increasing program capacity, fundraising, back office automation, including a lot of talk about uh, human resources. Um, you just, you got to get the book, which is uh, the smart nonprofit. But Beth, why don't you leave us with uh, inspiration and wisdom? Okay. Um, we've been through a lot. The sector's been through a lot. I mean, the world's been through a lot in the last two, two plus years um, with the pandemic and um, accompanying other crises, and, as uh, Allison has outlined. And I think we're, we are like at a, a precipice where we could just either go down the rabbit hole of, uh, you know, a human capital crisis and spiraling out and people leaving the field and organizations just, you know, stopping business and, you know, leaving lots of um, people who are vulnerable, who need their services. I mean, that's, we can't go there. <laughs> we have to pivot. And I think that um, smart tech is part of the, the the tools that can help us get there. But again, they're tools. They also need well, this empathetic leadership that we've been talking about. Um, and we all, who can also steer and change the culture to put people first. Um, and um, and I think if we can have all of these things together, working for the organization, the smart tech plus the culture plus the leadership, uh, we'll be able to move forward in a, in a post-pandemic world with much better outcomes, uh, with happier staff, with uh, staff doing a better job, with donors feeling seen and heard and uh, wanting to, you know, um, write bigger checks, if you will, with clients um, who are uh, receiving the services that they need and we're on a path to a better world. It's not gonna be easy, but uh, we believe that um, nonprofits can do this. That's Beth Cantor, at Beth Cantor and BethCantor.org. Co-author Allison Fine, at A Fine and AllisonFine.com. The book is The Smart Nonprofit. You can find it at either of their two sites. Beth and Allison, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing. Thank you Thanks so much, Tony. Us, Tony. <laughs> Genuine pleasure. Next week, Eric Saperston returns after many years. Let's talk about waking up excited and going to bed fulfilled. If you missed any part of this week's show, I beseech you. Find it at TonyMartinetti.com. We're sponsored by Turn 2 Communications, 
PR and content for nonprofits. Your story is their mission, turn-2.co. And by Fourth Dimension Technologies, IT Infra in a Box, the affordable tech solution for nonprofits, tony.ma slash 4D, just like 3D, but they go one dimension deeper. Our creative producer is Claire Meyerhoff. The show's social media is by Susan Chavez. Mark Silverman is our web guy. And this music is by Scott Stein. Thank you for that affirmation, Scotty. You're with me next week for Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Go out and be great. <laughs>